0: Hey everyone, Christine here to tell you a little story for Footnoting History's fourth edition of History for Halloween. This year's source, as usual for me, is a newspaper. It's the Ovens and Murray Advertiser out of Beechworth, Victoria, in Australia. The story is called Ghost Factory, which, of course, piqued my interest. It appeared in print on September 14th, 1907, and relayed a story about a haunting in Europe that caused what the paper called a remarkable case. In Germany, near Munich, there was an aged widow in a state of hysterics. The newspaper says that the wretched widow was driven crazy. But by what? Ghosts, of course! The woman, who was not named, was being tormented by no less than seventeen of them. Yes, seventeen ghosts. That is a lot of ghosts for one woman. The spirits were pulling all sorts of tricks. They killed her roosters and her hens, they stole her eggs and butter, and they made unearthly noises all night long. Luckily, the widow had a family living in her farmhouse with her. Now, the Wolf family was not related to our haunting victim. The family, which consisted of a husband, a wife, and their two daughters, were renting the farmhouse, and thank the heavens, they knew how to get rid of ghosts. So they told their landlady that they would be happy to help her, as long as she could fund the endeavor, because it costs a lot of money to get rid of ghosts, and the price they gave her ended up being a mere 14,000 marks, which amounted to pretty much all the money the woman had to her name. Of course it did. The police, around this point, became somehow aware of her diminishing financial situation, as well as her increased hysterics over this constant harassment by this barrage of ghosts. They took an interest on her behalf, and shock horror they determined it was not ghosts at all that were haunting the widow. It was the rental family. They had marked her as a superstitious woman who always worried about supernatural things coming after her. So when they realized that they liked the house, but they would like it a whole lot more without her in it, they got together a plan, and that plan involved all of them, yes, even the daughters, having rehearsals, And during these rehearsals, they perfected their egg-stealing, chicken-killing, and general terrorizing of this elderly woman. It was, as the title suggested, a veritable ghost factory at the farmhouse. According to the article, the victim was, quote, suffering from brain fever by the time the police figured out who did it, not to mention she was probably a little upset that the people she rented her farmhouse to had betrayed her. A trial was held, and the family was found guilty and punished to varying degrees. One daughter had 18 months of imprisonment. The other daughter and the wife got two years, while the father-slash-husband, he got the harshest sentence. He got five years of penal servitude, a heavy fine, and the loss of his civil rights for ten years. Now, we have to hope that the woman, who was likely a bundle of frayed nerves, was once again able to live in peace with her livestock once all of this was sorted out. But, if there's one thing for you to take away from this, it's the family that haunts together faces criminal charges together. Happy Halloween!
1: The Sounds in the Attic You know that feeling when you are home alone, perhaps at night, and suddenly you can hear people walking upstairs? Maybe you're falling asleep and suddenly you swear you can hear whispers from the closet, alone in the bathroom, and the shower curtain flutters like someone is hiding inside. When I was a child, home alone watching my little brother, we were sitting in the dim family room when we heard the distinct sound of pool balls striking each other. Not once and not twice, but back and forth, as though two ghosts were playing pool where the piano was. The sounds made no sense. We didn't have a pool table in the house. My brother and I slowly began to build that fear up until finally we bolted from the house and ran down the street to a friend's house. We stayed there until our furious mother came to collect us, well past our bedtime. More collected people don't do this, I'm told. It has taken me many years of my adult life to persuade myself that such sounds are nothing. It helps that I can blame the noises on my dog or on my cat. And frankly, sometimes I miss that explanation when I'm out on a trip without them. Justifying spooky sounds helps us all stay sane when the fear of the unknown captures the mind. I imagine this is what Fred Osterreich thought in his Chicago Home in 1918. He began to hear noises upstairs, especially in the morning while shaving and getting ready for work. Occasionally in the evening, he would notice that his cigars were smoked without any memory of having smoked them. He accused his wife, Dolly, of taking them while he was at work. She was incensed at the accusation. She was a lady, after all. And ladies did not smoke cigars. The couple bickered and argued, but the accusations went nowhere, and things continued to go missing. The awkward moments and strange sounds continued for four full years. Reportedly, Fred began to feel as though he were losing his mind. He hired a service to check for a raccoon nest or other animal infestations. He paid to have the roof completely reshingled, And each time, while there was a brief period of respite, the sounds would come back. And Fred finally decided the house itself must be poorly made. The noises proved to be too much, and he and his wife sold the house in Chicago and moved to Los Angeles. But this did not rid him of his curse. There, the sounds began again in earnest, this time louder than before. It struck Fred as impossible. He began shouting at Dolly that she was playing a trick on him. She refused, and the couple began to fight. As Fred and Dolly attacked each other physically, yelling and throwing things, a man suddenly burst into the room. He raised a gun and shot Fred three times. Fred died almost immediately. Dolly, his wife, cried out, and then she ran into the man's arms. His name was Otto. He had been living in their attic for four years. It had made their love affair that much easier to let Otto just live in their home. And when they moved, she had moved him along with their other belongings. They hastily tried to reposition the scene to make it look like a a burglary gone wrong, but the story soon unraveled, and the police took them both into custody. If only Fred had been alive to know, he had been right all along. The thing is, this is not a one isolated incident. Consider the Gruber family farm in Hinterkaifeck in Germany, in the same year as Fred Osterreich's death, 1922. The Gruber family was found, butchered, in their own home. As the police began to investigate, they realized that the family had been dead for weeks, if not longer. But during that time, someone had been living in their house, working around the dead bodies, feeding the farm animals, and tending the crops. As the police processed the dead bodies and searched the house for clues, they stumbled upon a nest in the attic. Based on the clothes, the decomposing food, and other elements, The police concluded that the murderer had been living in the family's attic for possibly a year. Who knows what set him off to come down into the main home and kill the family living there. The case remains unsolved today. Even now, a Google News search for criminal living in attic returns a disturbing number of active criminal investigations. Sneaking into people's homes and living above them, watching them as they live their lives, appears to be its own subgenre of criminality. So while we focus on stories from the past here on Footnoting History, let me just part with this advice. If you hear a sound from the attic, maybe check it out, and be careful out there this Halloween.
2: I'm Lucy, and my frightening footnote this year is owed to M.R. James in his capacities, As author and scholar. The superbly named Montague Rhodes James was, like me, a medievalist. He was also a spinner of tales, one whose imagination teemed with spectres, ghosts, unseen and perhaps unspeakable things. It is, unsurprisingly, this latter identity which has assured his posthumous fame. If still comparatively obscure on this side of the Atlantic, M. R. James is yet revered for his horror stories, which achieved a distinct and haunting voice in a period that also saw the likes of Wilkie Collins and Sheridan Le Fanu. James also worked his profession into his stories in memorable ways, whether in the plot of The Treasure of Abbot Thomas, which begins with an extended Latin quotation from a monastic chronicle, invented, of course, by James himself, or the simultaneously whimsical and ominous opening of "Oh, Whistle, and I'll Come to You, My Lad, which begins, I suppose you will be getting away pretty soon, now full term is over, professor, said a person not in the story to the professor of ontography, soon after they had sat down next to each other at a feast in the hospitable hall of St. James's College. The amiable and innocent professor agrees all too readily to look at the site of a Templar preceptory for a medievalist colleague, but I shall not spoil the story by telling you what dark fate he encountered. Today, rather than a Victorian ghost story, I'd like to tell you a medieval one, first edited and published by M. R. James and drawn from the records of Byland Abbey, a now-ruined monastery on the Yorkshire Moors. Concerning the ghost of Robert, son of Robert, from Boltby in Kilburn, who was seized in a cemetery. Remember that the aforesaid Robert, the younger one, "'died and was buried in the cemetery, "'but he was in the habit of leaving his tomb at night "'and disturbing and frightening the villagers, "'and the hounds of the village followed him and barked loudly. "'At length the young men of the village were talking among themselves, "'proposing to capture him if in some way they could, "'and they set out together to the cemetery. "'But when the ghost appeared, everyone fled except for two of them, one of whom, Robert Foxton by name, seized the ghost as he was leaving the cemetery and pinned him to the church stile, while the other shouted bravely, You hold him tight until I come to you. His companion responded to him, Go quickly and fetch the parish priest so that the ghost may be conjured, because, God willing, whatever I am holding, I will clutch it firmly until the priest arrives. Indeed, This parish priest hastened quickly and conjured the ghost in the name of the Holy Trinity and in the power of Jesus Christ until the ghost answered the questions he was asked. Once he had been conjured, the ghost spoke from deep inside its body and not with its tongue, but as though in an empty cask and confessed his many crimes. When the ghost had made these things known, the priest absolved him, but burdened the men who captured him so that they would not in any way reveal his confession. And as for the ghost, he rested in peace, according to God's will. It is said, however, that before his absolution, the ghost would stand in the doorways and windows of a house and under walls and ramparts, as though listening. Perhaps he was waiting to see if someone would come, and conjure him in his need for help. Others say that he aided and abetted the murder of a certain man, and committed other evil deeds concerning which no one is allowed to speak to the present day. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at HistoryFootnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.